On Wednesday evening, many of us gathered in the sanctuary for a post-election vigil. I used the following subtitle in the congregation-wide email that I sent to indicate the spirit in which the vigil was intended. Healing our hearts, healing the heart of our democracy. We have too many blocked hearts and broken hearts in this country. Too much meanness, too much incivility, too much lack of compassion. As I said Wednesday, in the wake of any election that I can remember, regardless of which party won, and I've been doing this minister thing for a while, in in regard to any of those elections I can remember, I wouldn't feel compelled to call a vigil the next day, no matter who won. But this election season has been particularly divisive. As I have preached before from this pulpit, it is possible to be a religious liberal and a political conservative. When we say that Unitarian Universalism is a liberal religious movement, it's a reference much older than contemporary liberalism, reaching back to that Latin root liber, meaning freedom. Uh, Unitarian Universalism is a free religious movement which includes the freedom to choose a politically conservative position. And we have many examples from our history of Unitarian Universalists who were also political conservatives. Most famously, President William Howard Taft, who was both a Republican president of the United States and later president for, I think, about 10 years of the Unitarian General Conference. But irrespective of the partisan divide, it is important to call out in this particular election season that Donald Trump has been a bully. He has regularly proclaimed misinformation with confidence, and he has fanned the flames of racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, and Islamophobia. And while all that is true, I am not saying that that is the whole story of the Trump campaign, nor am I saying that all Trump supporters are racist, anti-Semitic, misogynistic Islamophobes. There are, for example, clearly individuals and segments of this country that voted for Barack Hussein Obama, our first black president's promise of change you can believe in. They voted for that in 2004, and they voted for it in 2008, and they also voted this year for Donald Trump's promise of change. But even though Trump represents change and hope to some American voters, the centrality of bigotry in his campaign means that many oppressed groups in our society feel particularly vulnerable in the wake of this election, much more so than after any election in recent memory. Although I knew holding a post-election vigil entailed the possibility of being misunderstood, I felt it was worth the risk to offer a safe place for people feeling vulnerable, alienated and alone to give them a chance to process their feelings in beloved community. I felt it was important to emphasize and reassure that this congregation is and will continue to be a beloved community who answers the call of love in the wake of this or any other election. Regardless of this and any other election, we will continue to be in solidarity with Muslims, with women, with refugees, with people of color, and people with disabilities. We will continue to advocate for equal rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country. There are many different reasons why people join a Unitarian Universalist congregation. But one of the most consistent themes I've heard over the years is that many of you read our UU principles and that either attracted you or sealed the deal. You thought, wow, that's what I think. It's possible to have a religious community based on that. 
And it remains the case in the wake of this or any other election that we covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That we affirm and promote the justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another, and encouragement to spiritual growth, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process in our congregations and in society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are all a part. Now, for some of you, Hillary Clinton was your dream candidate. For others of you, she was a compromise. Still others of you or your family and friends voted for a third party, voted for Donald Trump, or didn't vote at all for a confluence of complicated reasons. There's not time this morning for me to attempt a nuanced analysis of the election, nor is there any reason for me to try to replicate what increasing numbers of people are already doing on Slate, on New York Times, on the Washington Post, on Facebook, and many other forums. I will say that I'm skeptical of simplistic explanations. As many of you have heard me say before, I am a proponent, I am a proponent of intersectionality. That word intersectionality uses the analogy of a traffic intersection in which oncoming traffic is coming from many different directions at once. Any full accounting of this election should at minimum consider the intersection of race, gender, class, sexual orientation, religion, and age, and how they played out differently in individuals, groups, and regions for complex historical and cultural reasons. Regarding the divides in our country, I'll limit myself for now to just one story from a white Midwestern heterosexual male who is a former evangelical Christian who has become a religious atheist, a political leftist, and a college professor. In wrestling with the political divides in his own family, he writes, My parents are good people. They are honest, they work hard, they are generous. My dad makes friends everywhere he goes. My mom went to college later in life to become a teacher specifically so that she could help underprivileged black students. They both voted for Trump because they saw him as the lesser evil. What was disturbing to me was my mom's inability to even hear why I would find Trump especially problematic. It was as though this was just another election, no matter what I said. Now, this is going to be him speaking for his own discernment. You'll have to figure out what feels right and safe and boundaried for you. For him, he said, for me, if I decided to cut them off or even skip Christmas this year while the wound is still fresh, it would not, in my family, be a teachable moment. Any more than the time that my dad's favorite talk show host, this happened in quite publicly, any more than the time that my dad's favorite talk show host, Rush Limbaugh, casually slandered me to a national audience, causing a hate campaign against me that resulted in me getting off Twitter. My dad offered to call in, assuming that, oh, he could explain that that moment was all a joke and that Rush, of all people, would be sympathetic to someone getting in trouble for an ill-considered joke. Anyway, harassment campaigns happen on the left, too. He concludes, no, if I chose for me to break contact with my family over this, I fear it would be evidence to them only that I was totally lost. Even that most extreme gesture in my family would not be enough to cut through the armor of misinformation and innuendo and false equivalency that they have built up. We are a divided nation in many ways, but we continue to need one another more than ever. We must continue to answer the call 
to love. But you also need to be honest about what you need and what is safe for you in the days and months ahead. Uh, Looking more broadly, uh, Brexit, the United Kingdom's vote in June to withdraw from the European Union, the election of Donald Trump as the president-elect of the United States last week, the potential election next year of Marine Le Pen, uh, the far right-wing leader in France, are all uh, reactionary movements against globalization. But the rise of climate change, the Internet, and, the, and how economically entangled our world already is uh, make it far from clear that a nativist retreat from internationalism is even possible. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said 50 years ago when he addressed the Unitarian Universalist Association's General Assembly, they were gathered in Florida that year, he said these words to us in 1966. We have inherited a large house a great world house in which we have to live together, a family unduly separated in ideas and values and culture must learn somehow to live together in peace. Together we must learn to live as a family together or together we will perish as fools. As you use, we are particularly poised to help model a big tent way of building multicultural beloved communities. We're far from perfect, but we do have a lot of experience of building bridges across um, differences and diversity. That goal of building the beloved community connects with my sermon title for this morning of No Permanent Waves. As many of you know, I sit down each June to uh, plan my sermon titles for the next year. So this summer, in early summer, when I sat down and thought, what do I want to say potentially on the weekend, the Sunday after the presidential election, my gut inclination was to preach about the history of the women's movement. Because it felt like, and I, I think this is still true, you can let me know if it's true or not, but it felt like an appropriate topic regardless of the outcome. Given the prominent role that many of our UU forebears played in the women's suffrage movement and the women's liberation movement, if Hillary won, it would be an opportunity to reflect on the significance of the first female president of the United States and all the people who have sacrificed to try to make that possibility a reality. If this election turned out not to be the election of the first female president, it nevertheless felt appropriate to remember the times that the women's movement faced setbacks before rising again to fight the good fight. There are no permanent waves, but when a wave crashes, another begins the process of rising up. To give a brief sketch of the cresting and crashing of waves that have brought us to this present moment, the first wave of the women's movement in the U.S. began to rise up 170 years ago, in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, with the first women's convention. That first wave crested 96 years ago in 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. There are a lot of stories to tell about that first uh, wave of feminism. I'll limit myself to just one. When Tennessee became the 36th and final state to ratify the 19th Amendment, uh, the final and deciding vote in Tennessee belonged to the 24-year-old Harry Burns. He changed his vote last minute after receiving a telegram from his mother that said, now be a good boy and vote for suffrage. (laughs) 
that's a reminder of how close these votes can go, the small things that can turn them one way or the other. Uh, it's also a good example of how long waves can take to crest, because only one, only one of the original signers of that 1848 Declaration of Sentiments in, uh, in Seneca Falls lived to see women win the right to vote in this country in 1920. But that groundwork in 1848, all those women who were there and who didn't live to see the day, they were vital to the victory that came seven decades later. And after four decades of rebuilding, the second wave of the women's movement began bubbling up in the early 1960s with the other countercultural movements of that time. And, they, and it, uh, it grew in size and strength, and it began to crest with the passage of Title IX in 1972, which pro- uh, prohibited sex discrimination in schools that received federal funding. That created a sea change in athletic opportunities for girls and women that continues to this day. And 1973 Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade you know, significantly advanced reproductive justice in this country, even though there remains work to do. But despite these and other successes, second wave feminism began tragically crashing with the slow death of the Equal Rights Amendment, which simply said that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state based on sex. Although the ERA passed the House of Representatives and the Senate to triumphant celebrations in 1971 and 1972, respectively, it was ultimately defeated a decade later in 1982 when North Carolina tabled the amendment and Florida and Illinois rejected it. There was a backlash to the women's movement in the 1980s, and many historians date a resurgent third wave of the women's movement to the rise in consciousness around sexual harassment that was triggered by law professor Anita Hill's allegations against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas in 1991. The sexist way that the all-male Senate Judiciary Committee um, treated Professor Hill inspired many women to say, we're running for Congress because we're not going to have all-male Senate Judiciary Committees if we can help it. Uh, That resulted in five new female senators and 24 new women in the House of Representatives. In In the wake of a defeat, that's always an option, running for office, encouraging qualified others to do so. The second and third waves of the women's movement have also been increasingly intersectional, accounting not only for gender, but for race and class and sexual orientation and transgender women. Now, we're too close historically to accurately discern if the third wave has ended or whether a fourth wave has begun or beginning. But the more important point is that there are no permanent waves to the gender justice movement or any other justice movement. And the wave metaphor also doesn't mean that all those decades that are excluded from the wave, you know, before 1848 or from 1920 to 1960, it doesn't mean that those were feminist free zones. It just meant that those were times of rebuilding. When a wave crashes, another begins the process of rising up. Any surfer will tell you that as glorious as it is to ride that wave of women getting the right to vote or you know, passing legislation for equality, you can't spend all your life on top of a wave. It's just not how the ocean works. But in the words of one of my colleagues, our job is to keep scanning the horizon because the next wave always comes. As I've been reflecting on this wave metaphor 
<clears throat> the poem that keeps coming to mind is Marge Percy's The Low Road. It's from her 1980 collection titled The Moon is Always Female. She writes, What can they do to you? To you alone, they can do whatever they want. They can set you up, they can bust you, they can break your fingers, they can burn your brain with electricity. They can blur you with drugs till you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, they can wall up your lover. They can do anything that you can't stop them from doing. Alone, you can't fight. Alone, you, uh, so how can you stop them? Alone, you can fight. You can refuse. You can take what revenge you can, but they will roll over you. But two people, two people fighting back to back can cut through a mob. A snake dancing file can break a cordon and an army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, can give support, conviction, love, massage, sex, and hope. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. With six, you can rent a whole house, you can eat pie for dinner with no seconds and hold a fundraising party. A dozen makes a demonstration and a hundred fills a hall. A thousand have solidarity in their own newsletter. Ten thousand power in your own paper. A hundred thousand your own media. And ten million your own country. It goes on one at a time. And it starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they say no. It starts when you say we and know what you mean. And each more mean one more each day. We're in this together. And I'm grateful to be with you on this journey. For now, I'll conclude with these words from my colleague, the Reverend Ashley Haran. Each of you is enough. You are precious, your work matters, and your life matters. You are already a part of a we, a great cloud of witnesses living and dead who have insisted that this beautiful but broken world of ours is a blessing worthy of deep gratitude and fierce protection. Whatever happens in the wake of this or any other political election, our ancestors and our descendants are beckoning us. They are compelling us onward to greater connection, greater compassion, greater commitment to one another and to this earth. Together, we, together, not alone, but together we are resilient and resourceful enough to say yes to that call, to make it our life's work in a thousand different ways, knowing that we can do no other than bind ourselves together more tightly, to throw ourselves into the holy work of showing up again and again, to be building a world that we dream about but have not yet seen. Let me say just a few more quick things. One, the perspective from UU history on this election is just one thing I've been thinking of is that it can seem a little bizarro sometimes, at least for me, uh, to look out in the world and to, to see the misogyny, even being a man, because I live in this UU land and that... You know, a lot of mainline denominations got on board with like ordaining women and women bishops in the set, you know, the 1970s. You know, Unitarian Universalists started ordaining women in the 1860s. You know, that's when we, so it's like, you know, we started 
you know, giving women full and equal power as part of the first, you know, early in the first wave of the feminist movement, not as part of the second wave. So now that we're in the, thir- you know, in, uh, in, I think we, we tipped over into 51% of Unitarian Universalist ministers being women in 1999. So, I mean, it's just, so it, it can feel really uh, hard, but I think it also makes this place even more important and the UU movement uh, all the more vital because we are a place that can amplify your values of justice and inclusion and, and modeling that a different way is possible. Uh, I'll also say I've heard um, a lot of people asking, uh, you know, what do we do now? And, and I'll just say we're, we're part of what I've been deciding, you know, what to do now is that if you look on the front of the order of service, you know, we've thought about this together already. If you look at the top, you know, we have a mission statement that's both individual and collective, that what do we do? We, we work for spirituality, community, and justice, that what are we doing here? We, we join together to encourage spiritual growth, to build beloved community, and to act for peace and justice. And so for me, with that, that's part, I think about our mission statement a lot. I, I really encourage you to memorize it if you haven't before, that, you know, so that when I got up the day after the election, I was like, you know, so I was asking myself, what do we do now? And I, I really did think, because it really is close to my heart, I thought, what will feed my soul? What will encourage my spiritual growth? And so what I did, I meditated. That's what I did. The first thing I did um, Wednesday morning was I got up and I meditated for 30 minutes. And then as I was discerning, uh, you know, do I call a vigil? Do I call people together? I was thinking about what will feed people's soul? What will build beloved community? And that's what tipped me over the edge to saying that we need to hold a vigil. And part of that was also acting for peace and justice, to provide a safe space for people who were feeling alienated, for, for a place where we could say that we will continue to stand with women and Muslims and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country that all, you know, stand with immigrants. That, uh, so I give you that as a touchstone for, to the extent that it might be helpful to you as well in the days ahead. The final thing I'll say, and remember that 10 minutes after this we'll gather in here for anyone who wants to, is that the piece of my sermon, the, the biggest piece of my sermon that I would have done differently if Hillary had won, that, it's, that some of you may still find helpful, is the book Powered by Girl, uh, published this year by our uh, own UU Beacon Press. It's excellent. It's called a, a Field Guide for Supporting Youth Activism. So if you want some empowering stories about how to move forward, Powered by Girl. Be compressed. I recommend it to you. And no matter what, uh, after this or any election, after whatever happens in your life, choose to continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, of joy, whatever you know, hope maybe it gives you to see, you know, we had, I think, even more this morning. We have 27 members of our children's choir. They're being taught songs like, come, come, whoever you are. You know, that, we are setting, sowing seeds that are of hope for the future, of a different way of being in the world. So any of that that gives you even a glimpse of hope, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having been together. There may also be people that need to know about this place that you might want to bring with you next week or in the weeks to come. But regardless of any of that, may you live boldly and with thanksgiving. May you go in peace.